Man, I'm really loving this Peter series. Eh, it's okay. Seriously, what's wrong with it? It's awesome. Yeah, they need to liven it up. How? Rap. Seriously? Yeah. All right, dog. Let's see what you got. Yo, yo. You know, his name was Simon Peter, and he was a great leader. He spoke with truth and love. You know his words came from above. He dropped the fishing rod and joined the Jesus Squad. Yeah, boy. No, 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 no. Uh, this was a mistake. What? I thought that was good. I mean, I don't know about you, but nothing says serious hardcore rap more than two white boys sitting in front of a Sonic. Am I right? That is really what I think of when I think of rap. You had the dreads. I mean, that just takes it over the top. That's pretty impressive. I uh, really appreciated these videos during the series. I always like, as somebody that tries to use some humor, uh, whether you think it's funny or not, is really not of concern to me. But uh, I try to use some humor, so it's always nice to have somebody kind of like warm up the room for me. So those videos have been great during this series. I'm going to be talking today about how to spot a false teacher. And this is part 10 of our series that we've been doing on First and Second Peter. And today we're talking about this idea of spotting a false teacher. Now, the good news is, is that because they've asked me to preach this morning, that must mean that I am not a false teacher. So that's good. I was happy to discover that about myself. In fact, I am so not false that our church's leadership team has assigned me to be able to tell you who is false. And that is Rick Jacobs. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Definitely is not a false teacher. I just used him because he's on sabbatical and there's literally zero chance he will ever hear this message. But this false teacher thing is kind of a weird concept. I mean, truthfully, when it comes to this pulpit here at Daybreak, I mean, you can be assured that the people that we put up here to speak to you are not going to teach you false doctrine, but we're going to preach Jesus. Uh, we're going to tell you about who Jesus was and about the things that Jesus taught and how his sacrifice for us means that now we can have a relationship with God. You know, we're committed to teaching you that. And there may be like a television preacher or two that you're a little bit weird, like leery of, like, I don't know what that guy's really talking about. But for the most part, we don't really, we don't really encounter a whole lot of false teachers in our regular everyday life, do we? I mean, there's not like a lot of people that you're constantly like, oh, I got to watch what that person tells me because they might deceive me and lead me down. You know, there's not a whole lot of that. At the time that Peter was writing this, though, I mean, that's exactly what was happening. There were these false teachers that were intentionally leading people astray and teaching them things about Jesus that weren't true about Jesus. For us today, though, it's a little bit different. Uh, it may not be as open and blatant as it was at the time of Peter, but for us, it really just mo looks more like deception on any level. If we are being deceived, that could be false teaching that is leading us astray. So if you can't think of a person that is a false teacher, that's probably a good thing. Uh, but I would definitely say that there are things that, there are messages that are be being communicated by the world around us, by the culture around us, that are there with the intention to deceive us from what it really ideally means to have a relationship with God. You know, we are most often deceived simply by things like the movies that we watch or the TV shows that we record, uh, the magazines that we read, uh, the music that we listen to. This deception is much more subtle, but absolutely just as dangerous, maybe even more so, because a lot of the time we don't realize that we're being deceived as we involve ourselves with those different levels of entertainment. Now, I recently went on vacation to a place called Sandy Cove. 
I went with my whole family, which my family is me and my wife, Laurie. And then we have three kids. Our oldest is Dylan. He's six years old. Our middle child is Kenzie, and she's four years old. And then our youngest is one. She'll be two in October, and her name is Carly. And we went to this place called Sandy Cove. And the cool thing about Sandy Cove is it's this family camp where you get to go and spend the whole week together as a family. But then there's also times that they have this thing called Club Cove that we send all our kids to Club Cove and then we get some time on our own. So we can go to the services where you hear people speak or we can just spend some time alone as a couple and kind of hang out and talk to each other. Like any of that is acceptable. And so it really was a great week for us. And the thing for me that was a lot of fun, uh, for any of you that work full-time in this room and have young kids at home, you understand that like, it is kind of hard working full-time and realizing your kids are like growing up, but you don't get to spend as much time with them as you'd like to. Like we probably all like to just not have to work and be able to just hang out with our kids 24-7. Like I would love it if that was, that was possible, but it's not at this phase of my life. And so going away on a trip like this is really fun for me, uh, mostly because I just get to spend the entire week with my kids and actually just spending time with them and getting to know them more and understanding them better. So that was exciting for me. Uh, And it's also exciting for my kids that way because they don't always get to have dad at home during the week. So at the end of the week, our our middle child, Kenzie, who right now I'm just, I'm kind of like her world. She's just like daddy's little girl. And like, you know, sometimes I complain about that when she's like clinging to me. But most of the time I just think this is the greatest thing in the world to have this small child thinking I am the most fantastic thing that's ever happened to her, you know. So at the end of this week, she had obviously had a lot of fun being able to spend most of the week with me. Um, just because of our relationship. And uh, at the end of the week, we were getting ready to pack up. It was Friday and Kenzie had this like pouty look on her face. And I I didn't understand why she was pouty because we'd had so much fun. So I went over to her and I said, Kenzie, what's wrong? Why are you sad? And she said, well, I just wish that we didn't have to leave Sandy Cove. And I said, oh, well, why don't don't you want to leave Sandy Cove? She said, well, when we're at Sandy Cove, you're with us all week. And I get to spend a lot of time with you. But now I know we're going to go back home and you're going to go back to work and I won't get to spend all day with you every day. And that's so sweet. And so, of course, I gave her a big hug, a huge hug, and I told her I loved her. And I assured her that, yes, that's true. I mean, I am going to have to go back to work and I will go to work during the week. But we still have all day today and we have all day tomorrow. And then on Sunday, I have to work at church because have, I have youth group in the morning and then we have a program that night. So I told her I'd be away pretty much all day Sunday. But then on Monday, we'd get the whole day together again. So we had a lot of fun on Friday, a lot of fun on Saturday. And then Sunday came and I was busy all day. It wasn't until about nine o'clock at night that I got home and I was able to be a part of getting the kids to bed. They were just all ready for bed and I was just kind of tucking them in. And as I was tucking them in, I could see that Kenzie was kind of doing her pouty face again. And so I said, Kenzie you know, what's, what's wrong? And she said, well, daddy, you tricked us. And I was like, surprised by that. And I was like, no, I, I didn't trick you. Like, what do you mean I tricked you? And she said, well, you told me when we were at Sandy Cove that you were going to spend the whole day with me today. And you didn't, you went and you worked all day. And so I then explained to her like, no, honey, you, you must've misunderstood. What I told you was that we would have all day Friday and all day Saturday, but then Sunday I would have to work And then on Monday, we'd get the whole day together again. And once I explained that to her, the frown that was on her her face turned into a smile. She kind of looked at me with this like little sheepish grin and said, I'm sorry, daddy, I thought you tricked us. (laughs) But as soon as the deception was gone, as soon as she realized like I wasn't deceiving her, it was just a mistake and I was giving her truthful information, she was completely fine. But the, 
the fact of the matter is that even at a, young, at a very young age, we do not like to be deceived. I mean, just like Kenzie, I'm sure many of you in this room have experienced being deceived by somebody else, and it does not feel good. We don't like the way that feels. We don't like it when people are not truthful with us, when they mislead us. None of us do. And I mean, maybe for you, I'm sure for you, there's been times where you've been deceived. It's probably looked very different when you've been deceived. Maybe for you, it was like a deal that was too good to be true. You were promised something, but then when it arrived, it wasn't at all what you expected it to be. Or maybe you have a friend that you thought was a genuine friend, but then you found out later they were just using you. You know, they just weren't really a good friend to you at all. Or maybe you fell prey to the same thing that I have of like, watching an infomercial that promises you washboard abs and a tight butt, you know, and then that product doesn't deliver and you're like waiting for months on your refund. I'm not saying it happened to me. I'm just saying. (laughs) But we have to be aware of the fact that there are going to be times where we're deceived. And sometimes it is lighthearted. It's not a big deal. It's something we can get over quickly, but there are going to be times where it's going to be damaging. It's going to be life altering the things that we are deceived by. So how do we prepare for that? Well, essentially what we really need is an early warning system, you know, similar to like a smoke detector in your house. You need something that is going to let you know when you are potentially being deceived. We need to ask the right questions when confronted with new information in order to prevent being led astray uh, by what we're being told. So what I hope to do for you today is to kind of create a little bit of an early warning system for you so that you can help, that'll help you know when you potentially are being deceived and how to respond in a good way to that deception. So if you have your program guides with you, go ahead and get those out. I'm going to give you the first two blanks in your outline today. And that is this, how to spot deception. The first way you can spot deception is that deception diminishes Jesus and what he taught. So it diminishes Jesus and what he taught. This is the first and often most obvious clue if we're being deceived is that if what we are learning in any way diminishes who Jesus is or the things that he taught, then it is definitely not truth. Look at how Peter warns the church here in 2 Peter 2, in verse 1 to 2. He says, There will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. So Peter's basically saying here that false teachers are really good at teaching things that seem true, but are actually harmful. And often, if someone just sounds like they know what they're talking about, we believe them, right? Like if they can make a convincing enough argument, then we just kind of assume, oh, that must be true. And if they say it long enough and loud enough, we finally just go, you know what, this must be truth. What I'm hearing must be truth, because they've just said it for a long time, and nobody's stopping them, so it must be true. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Have, either, have you ever heard either of the following quotes from the Bible? They come to us from the book of Hezekiah. The first one is chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Money is the root of all evil. The next is from chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, We are all sons and daughters of God. You probably have not heard those because there is no book called Hezekiah. I just made that up. But I'm sure you're familiar with those quotes, right? Here's the thing, probably most of you weren't surprised that there's no book of Hezekiah. You're a pretty sharp crowd this morning. But would you be surprised to hear that neither of these quotes are actually in the Bible at all? These are two quotes that often are associated with the Bible. People quote them and attribute them to the Bible, but they're not in there. And there's more examples like them. But the thing is, for both of these, there's a small element of truth, but it's been twisted to kind of make it better for the person that is presenting 
that, uh, that phrase or using it, reciting it. See, in the first example, Jesus didn't teach that money is the root of all evil. What Jesus said is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's very different. You see, to Jesus, it wasn't about the money. It was a heart issue. It was a heart issue, and that was the problem. But sometimes we take that, and in order to, like, accomplish our own objective, we just use the money is the root of all evil. So money is bad. Money is a bad thing. Well, it's not the money. It's the attitude of the heart. Same thing with the other one that I... Uh, quoted is that it says, we are all sons and daughters of God, that worldwide we are just one big family of God. And though it makes us feel warm and fuzzy to say that, that we are all sons and daughters of God, the truth is we aren't. I mean, we are meant to be, we've been invited to be, but our sin prevents us from having a relationship with God. So it's only after we have allowed Jesus to deal with our sin to be our forgiver, to be our redeemer, to make us new people, it is only then that we are included in the family of God, that we are then considered sons and daughters of the king. Jesus even said in Matthew 12 when he was teaching, he said that his brothers and sisters were those that do the will of his father in heaven. So it's those that do the will of his father in heaven. That's when you are accepted into his family. We're all invited to be a part of his family, but can only be recognized as such once we have allowed Jesus to remove our sin and make us new. It's only then that we're recognized as his sons and daughters. You see what I'm getting at? There's these slight variations, these small word changes in order to change that truth and make it an untruth. There's slight differences. There's slight changes. And anytime that anyone or anything tries to diminish who Jesus is or the things that he teaches, that is deception. And remember, we're definitely not just talking about people here. We're talking about the movies that we watch or the TV shows that we watch or the magazines that we read, the novels that we read, anything that we consume as entertainment because they also like to present their own version of the truth. Everybody's putting their slight spin on things. So what can we do? How do we respond to this? Well, Peter gives us a pretty good way to determine who is teaching truth and who is not. In the passage that we just looked at, go ahead and go back and underline the words, deny the master. Deny the master. Anytime anyone diminishes who Jesus is, tries to make him take a back seat, then you know that that is not truth. And we can't have that because the thing that distinguishes the gospel from all other teachings is that Jesus is not simply like God. He's not just the other God. He is 100% God and 100% man. He had to be in order to accomplish his purpose here on earth. According to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. God walking here on earth. And the gospel is about God coming to earth in human form as Jesus. Dying a criminal's death on the cross. Bearing the punishment for our sin. So that sin would not keep us from joining the family of God. We've all been invited to join the family. And that could only happen because of Jesus. Now, that's truth. But what deception would say is that Jesus was a fantastic teacher. He was a fantastic teacher. And Jesus was the most incredible prophet to ever walk the earth. Or Jesus was a morally upright man. He never sinned. But that he wasn't God. That's deception. When we maintain that viewpoint of who Jesus is, we pretend that we don't need Jesus. We don't need his grace. But for those of us that have chosen, to, have chosen to accept his forgiveness, we know just how amazing that grace truly is. 
His grace brings us to the place where we realize that not only are we forgiven, but we're accepted by God. Not only has he washed our sin away, but actually he really, really likes us. He really likes you. He loves the way that he created you. He loves everything about you. And even when you make mistakes that lead you away from him, he's not sitting there angry at you. He's waiting with open arms to receive you back. He loves you. And any teaching that diminishes this truth is deception. So what is the antidote to this type of deception? That's what I'm going to try and give you today. It's like, okay, we can recognize it's deception because of this, but now what do we do in response? I believe that one of the antidotes, a really strong response to this, is to know the scripture, know the Bible, and commit to live out the gospel of Christ. You know, maybe you want to bring this point to life for you by picking out some Bible verses to memorize. I don't know if that's something you've done before, but maybe take time, especially with this message, to focus on verses that talk about who Christ is and what he came to earth to accomplish. And one of the things that I always encourage our students with, and I would encourage you with the same thing, is that if you're going to memorize some scripture, don't just memorize it and keep it in your head, but memorize it to use it. Find a scripture that really has meaning to you, is important and powerful to you. And as you memorize it, say, God, I'm memorizing this scripture and give me an opportunity to share it with somebody else. And only once you've had that chance to share that, that, that verse with somebody else, then move on to another scripture to memorize. Because I promise you, if you follow that pattern, God will give you opportunities to share what he is teaching you in his word. But knowing the scripture is only half the battle, right? I mean, we need to live it out too. The book of James is very clear that we shouldn't just read the word and not do what it says. Because if you do that, you're just deceiving yourself. That's actually the word that this passage uses in James chapter 2. It says that you will deceive yourselves. Okay, so I've already got to worry about everybody else in the world deceiving me, my culture deceiving me. You're saying that I can deceive myself too? Like that seems like that just makes it really complicated. Well, it's not really complicated. What the scripture is saying is that if we read the word and we repeatedly don't do what it says, eventually we will come to the place where we even deceive ourselves to think, well, I've been reading this for so long and it hasn't made a difference in my life, so there must be another teaching out there that I need to find. But that's what happens when you read the word and you don't apply the word. It's not, a, not enough just to know it. You have to actually make application of it. And what happens too is that if we refuse to follow God's direction long enough, we become selfish and we look only to our own needs and not to the needs of the people around us. And this is going to help us transition into point two, is that when we start worrying more about what we want and about what we need than about how we can please God with the way we live, we have fallen into a second type of deception. And that is number two. It's about pleasures payoff. How to spot deception number two? It is about pleasures payoff. There are lots of good things in life. I think that's great. I like having fun. And that's good. We should all enjoy having fun. There, there needs to be things that we enjoy, that we can do together with friends or with our family that just brings a smile to our face. One of the things that I look forward to every year, and even if the students like eventually just don't want to go, I'm still always going to plan this trip because I just want to go. As we do this ultimate trip every summer where we take a Monday and a Tuesday and we go to an amusement park and then we camp out. And for the last two years, we've hit the beach on the way home. And it's just so much fun. I love amusement parks. I love all of the thrill rides. And all of that is really good. It's great that we can go and just enjoy our time together. But if I filled our youth ministry calendar for the entire year, all just with 
fun, crazy, entertaining things, we wouldn't really accomplish the purpose, part of the purposes that we've designed our student ministry to accomplish. You see, we want students to encounter God. We want students to engage in healthy relationships with each other. We want them to express God's love by serving others. And if we just said, hey, we're just going to do fun, fun, fun all the time, we'd miss out on the opportunity to really encounter God, to really serve others in a unique way. So we can't just say, entertain me, entertain me, entertain me. That's all that life's about because it's not. We need to find ways to say, God, you need to be at the center of my life. Your mission needs to be my life goal. And when we lose sight of that, we've been duped again by the culture around us. Look at how Peter describes it back in 2 Peter 2, verses 14 to 15 now. It says, they commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin and they are well-trained in greed. They live under God's curse. They have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. It's all about greed. You see that word in there, greed? That's so important. It's, it's all about greed. It's, it's never satisfied. When we get to that place where we've believed that lie, that, that it's all about our satisfaction, our entertainment. It's all about us having a good time and having a good life. When we believe that lie, it becomes all about pleasure's payoff. Now, there's this reference in this passage to a somewhat obscure Old Testament prophet, and his name is Balaam. Let me t- briefly tell you, uh, I'm going to try and sum up what he was all about. Balaam was this prophet in the Old Testament, and from what we read about him, he kind of was a guy that felt like he could maybe pull one over on God and get his way. He was not an Israelite. He was actually hired by another king, the king of Moab, uh, to bring down a curse on the Israelites. And what he did is he would use his position as a prophet to gain power and money and influence for the sake of having power and money and influence. His power and influence, he didn't have it he didn't, he didn't want it for any purpose of doing any good work. He just wanted it so that he could be the one in control. He wanted to be seen as somebody important. And actually, it got to the point that the story in the Bible says that God actually used the donkey that Balaam was riding on to speak to Balaam and kind of convince him that the path he was on was the wrong one to be on. So he's literally going along and the donkey starts speaking to him. I don't know about you, but if I'm riding a donkey and that donkey starts speaking to me, I am definitely considering some kind of a life change. If that's God's message, the only way he can get through to me is to talk through the donkey to me, then I got some big problems going on. Probably might start by putting myself into a treatment center of some kind. But the truth is that if any one of us allow the accumulation of stuff to become the primary motivation for why we live, we will be disappointed in the long run. When we try to prop up our self-esteem with power and with money or with popularity or insert any other thing there, when we prioritize them over everything else in our life, we become a slave to those things instead of enjoying God's best for us. I mean, look at it this way. Let's say you prioritize your own amusement, your own entertainment over helping others. Well, you're going to have fun, but you're also going to feel empty. You're going to get to the end of your life and go, well, I had a lot of fun, but Did I really make a difference for anybody? Did I do anything to help anyone? Or let's say you prioritize money and career over your family. You're going to have a lot of nice stuff. You're going to have a lot of money. You're going to have a great portfolio. But you're also probably going to be very, very lonely because you will have failed to invest in the relationships that matter most. Or maybe you prioritize your popularity or what other people think think about you over what God thinks about you. 
Well, you'll probably be popular, but you will also only be the person that everybody else wants you to be. You'll probably struggle with your own self-identity and who you actually are. So Peter warns you to beware of people in your life whose priorities are habitually about their own pleasures instead of the people around, around them. Now, to illustrate this, I want a truck. I've wanted a truck for a little while. Uh, specifically, I would like a Ford F-150. So if anybody just feels generous, let me know. You can give me your Ford. I would love it. But I've wanted a truck for a little while. But the problem is, is that I want this truck... And I can come up with all of these reasons like, oh, yeah, we should get a truck because right now we only have the Corolla and the Corolla can't fit the kids. And we have the minivan for the kids, but really our second vehicle should be able to transport them as well. Or, well, I'd love to have a truck so that then I could like haul the yard stuff out of my front yard that's been sitting there for the last three weeks. I'd love to be able to do that or or even like get real just, you know, just really selfless about it. And I think. Well, you know, my wife, she works in the, in the emergency room at Harrisburg Hospital, and I just need to make sure that she has a safe vehicle to drive when she goes to work, you know, once or twice a year when it's snowing outside, you know. I can come up with all of these reasons, but I don't want to get caught into that kind of a cycle because here, I've been through that before, and I know what happens. I would buy that truck, and for a moment, there'd, this, there'd be this moment of exhilaration, like, hey, I have a truck. Isn't this great? I have a truck. And like the first week, if you've ever had a new car, the first week you're like, everything's like perfectly neat and clean and you're wiping down the dash every day and nobody leave any trash in the car. You can't drink drinks in here. And like two weeks later, there'd be McDonald's bags in the back seat. There'd be kids throw up on the dashboard. That's just what happens, you know. You get excited, but then you realize it's just fleeting. It's just the next thing on my list that I want. So I don't want to get caught in that cycle of just saying, what's the next thing on my list that I want. What's more important to me is my life in Jesus. You know, and I don't always live that way. Please don't think that I'm being prideful this morning and saying, yeah, I've got it all figured out. There's definitely times that I put my own needs above what God asks me to do. But what I desire, what I hope to be, is somebody that puts my life in Jesus, my family, uh, my ability to bless others, that I put those things first and not my own wants and my own needs. Because I can wait on that gift from God when he's ready to give it to me. So if you and I make the decision to wait on God's timing for the things he wants to bless us with, there will still be that temptation from time to time to kind of try and hurry God up and say, God, let's get this thing going. Let's make it happen. So the antidote to that is to slow down and be generous. Slow down and be generous. Be generous to people in need and the people that you love. Give away your time. Give away your money. It will make you more resistant to the deception of pleasure's short-term payoff If you say, no, I'm going to be all about serving somebody else. And for some of you today, this might actually be like a pretty big decision. Like this might be a pretty big shift in your life. That if you're going to have the opportunity to be generous with your time and be giving with your time, you're going to have to say no to a few things that you or your family is currently doing. So you need to talk to God about that and ask him, what is your direction? What's your plan for my life? So we figured out a few things. We first figured out that false teaching can seem good but can subtly diminish who Jesus is in his teaching. We've also figured out that false teaching often uh, results in this pleasure and its payoff. And now the third way we're often deceived is the next set of blanks in your outline, which is it promises freedom, but it delivers destruction. It promises freedom, but delivers destruction. You've probably heard the phrase, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. You've heard that, right? It's from Hezekiah. Not really. (laughs) 
That's a little proverb that is often true because of the amount of deception around us. It's happening all the time. I mean, have you ever been promised something that when you actually received it, it wasn't exactly what you thought it would be? Maybe you won a contest for a vacation away, and then when you called in about it, they're like, yeah, you just have to listen to our two-hour sales presentation. It's like, no thank you, I'll stay home. Or what about walking through the mall? It used to be that as long as I stayed out of the stores, I could avoid the heavy sales pitch from any of the people that were working there. But now, like over at Capital City Mall, when you walk through, like down the hallway, the whole way, there's like a thousand kiosks of people selling stuff and trying to get you to buy stuff. And you kind of like walk through with like blinders on, like, please don't talk to me. I just want to get out of here without buying a lot of stuff. They always start with, can I ask you a question? And I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to answer the question, but there's just this part of me that can't just say, no, you cannot answer me a question. I'm like thinking in my mind, is there any reason possible that I could say, no, you cannot ask me a question? Like, I'm deaf. Oh, wait, I just talked. That. So I walk through, I, and this is the problem, is that I then start talking to them. In about 20 minutes' time, I've bought an industrial-sized tub of exfoliating cream. I've made an, a, an appointment for a paraffin wax treatment. And uh, I walked out with an 18-month calendar of Justin Bieber. I mean, it happens every single time. I don't know why it always ends up a Bieber calendar, but maybe that tells you something about me. I have figured out, though, that if I walk through the mall with one of my kids, that's like the built-in defense. That as soon as somebody asks me, can I ask you a question? I'm like, can I ask you a question? My kid just pooped his pants. Do you know where I go to take care of that? And then, oddly, they're always really eager to point out a bathroom to me. They're really ready to end our conversation. I would, I would discourage you, though, from using the same tactic if, if it's just you and your wife. I've done that before. That was, that was a bad idea. It tends to have a negative effect on your marriage. So what's the point of this? I mean, having, having been duped in the past, right, that's what makes us wary of the future. And that's why when I go to the mall, somebody in the mall might have the greatest thing ever, the greatest product that is just going to revitalize my life, make me a new person. But I am not going to take it. Because in the past, I've been duped by offers like that. So I could miss out on something, right? I wish that I could be so resolute when it comes to areas of deception in my life. When there's those messages that whisper to me things that just are not truth, according to the Bible, that I wish I would be that ready to say no and walk away from it. Because too often, I entertain the thoughts, right? I entertain those things that are not truth. If only, if only I could talk to Peter <laughs> on a daily basis and he could remind me of this teaching. Look at what he says in 2 Peter 2, 18 to 19. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting. With an appeal to twisted sexual desires, they lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. So it just gets worse and worse in this passage, right? It just gets worse. We see the result of these people that have listened to this lifestyle of deception. I love the line from Peter in there where he says, they promise freedom, but are still slaves. They promise freedom, but they're actually still slaves themselves. You know, that's why most movies don't show the rest of the story. They only show, they only show you the part of the story that they want you to be entertained by. So you have a movie that's about this affair and this couple, oh, they end up together and they're so happy together. Isn't it great that they ended up together and now they can truly be in love? 
And that's the part of the movie that they show us. But they don't show the destruction that it causes for the families of those two people that chose to abandon their prior relationships in order to pursue that adulterous affair. Or we see stories that that are like depictions of war stories and they're very grand and exciting and oh wow, they won the battle, isn't that great? And we see the great victory, but we don't see the homes of the soldiers that have died in that battle. And so we get this skewed view of what these stories are really like. Stories that have no consequences, that have no hurt, that have no pain. But that's not the truth, is it? We are slaves to whatever controls us. One of the key things that I've learned to ask myself is what controls me? Because the truth is, even those who choose to be independent, they're still a slave to something. We only get to choose who is giving the orders. Will it be for good or or evil? Will it be the source of deception or will it be the father of truth? Will it be for the good of those around me or with my own selfish motives in mind? We get to choose. And sadly, we often choose to return to our sin, don't we? That's where we return to. Peter goes on to say in 2 Peter 2 and verse 22, they proved the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. I teamed up with Pastor Sean, our campus pastor at Good Hope Road, uh, to write this message. We worked on this message together. And uh, he was really excited about using this verse. This is one of his favorite verses in the Bible. And I actually didn't really want to talk about vomit. That's just me. I was kind of disgusted by it. I was like, does this really need to be in here? But as we talked, I was like, yeah, I think this message needs to be spoken. So I think this is kind of the point, is that I am disgusted by it. And you should be disgusted by it too. I mean, that's what it should be like when we return to our sin. That we should be so disgusted by it that it would be like returning to our own vomit. I heard a story once at a conference that I went to when I was in high school. I don't remember the name of the guy that was speaking, but he was telling me this story uh, of him and his brother that were on a flight together. They had booked the flight together, but their seats were not next to each other. They had, one of them was on the uh, inside part of the aisle back on the left, and then the other guy was two rows up on the other side of the aisle. So they could see each other, they could kind of holler across at each other, but they weren't right next to each other. And this was well back before they had as many security measures as they do now when you are boarding flights. And this guy was able to take his carry-on and actually take some snacks for the flight with him. And so in his carry-on, he brought a can of Dinty Moore beef stew. Now, if you know Dinty Moore beef stew, you know that's got some thick chunks in it, right? I mean, that is some meaty stuff. And so he gets the Dinty Moore beef stew and they get on the flight. And the brother that is sitting further back in the plane, once the plane has leveled off, takes out his Dinty Moore beef stew, opens it up, opens up a barf bag, pours the Dinty Moore beef stew into the barf bag, twists it up, and then hits his flight attendant button. Flight attendant comes over and she says, oh, sir, can I help you? And he's like, I'm I'm really sorry, but I had to use my bag. Like hands the bag to her. She's like, oh, sir, oh, yes, I'll take care of that right away for you. And so she takes the bag and she starts to walk up the aisle. And when she gets to the seat, where his brother is seated, his brother quickly, before she could even respond, goes, you're not going to throw that away, are you? Grabs it out of her hand, opens it, takes out a fork, and starts eating it. (laughs) Yummy. I'm not sure how many other people threw up on the flight that day, but I'm sure it was a number. (laughs) You're not going to throw that away, are you? I mean, it's so disgustingly vivid. It's so nasty. 
But it is so true of the sin that we hold on to in our life. God comes and he says, all right, I am going to take care of this for you. I'm going to take it away. You never have to see it again. And as he starts to walk away, we reach out and tug his sleeve and say, you're not going to throw that away, are you? Like, I was planning to come back to that later. And that's what we do with these areas of deception. You know, we allow these half-truths to be spoken to us, and we're not ready to just release those things to God. We do this with areas of sin too, the nasty stuff in our life that we are just not proud of. We want to get rid of them. We talk like we want to get rid of them. But then when Jesus is ready to get rid of it for us, we say, wait, you're not going to throw that away, are you? I'm going to need to return to that later. When and if we allow him to really take that bag away, to remove that thing from our life, we will get to experience the freedom that he truly intends for us to enjoy. But how do we do this? I mean, giving up old habits, old ways of thinking is hard. Well, here's an idea. Maybe the antidote for this one is to have authentic and accountable relationships in your life. That maybe part of getting past that area of mistruth or that area of sin is having an honest relationship with someone who can point out those places for you and call you out when you try to return to that place. If you're smart, you'll stop resisting the things that people who care about you say, and instead, you'll start listening to them and recognize that they can help you from returning to your old habits. You know, to summarize the message today, I started off talking today saying we needed an early warning system, and that's really what this message is. If one of these three things applies for you, let that be an early warning to you to run from the deception and to embrace God's truth instead. Like the first one that we talked about, the antidote was just being committed to knowing Jesus and knowing the things that he taught by studying his book. The second one that we talked about, the antidote was to be generous with your time, with your money, with your life, to give away as often as you can. I would encourage you too that if you give it away, you'll be surprised at how often you give everything that you can give and then you receive way more in return than what you were able to give. And the final thing is this, is to establish some healthy and authentic relationships in your life. Some people that will ask you the tough questions and they will keep you on task. And doing these things will help you to be aware of deception when it's coming and help you to beat it at every turn with the truth of the gospel. I'm gonna invite you to go ahead and take your response cards out. Uh, They're also included in your program guide today. Um, With those response cards, I want to give you a few ways that you can potentially respond. The question I have for you is, what is the early warning system that's missing from your life? Which one of these hits home for you? Maybe it's the knowing and applying scripture part of it. If that's you, you can just write scripture today. Or maybe it's the heart of generosity part of it. Like, oh man, I really need to make sure I have that heart of generosity. Then go ahead and write generosity on your response card. Or the last thing is this, maybe it's the accountable friendships part, that that needs to be the way that you address some of the deception that you've been listening to. Then you can just write accountability on your card. And we just want to be able to pray for you that way. Uh, If you would like somebody to follow up with you, then you can mark your card that way. But we just want to be able to pray specifically for where you're at and what you're going through. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to go ahead and come back, and I'm going to say a word of prayer as they come. Would you join me in prayer? God, I love you, 
And I, I thank you so much for every person that's here today. I thank you for the opportunity to respond to you. I know, God, that you, um, you have challenged me with this message. I realize that there are often times that I allow myself to be deceived. Uh, I want to live in your truth. So God, help me to use these early warning signs uh, to be aware of it and to walk away from it, to embrace your truth, uh, to, to know your word, to be able to return to your word. We just trust you in what you teach us. God, help me to be generous. And God, help me to have people in my life that I can just open up to and be honest. And God, my prayer that I've uttered for myself is the same for every person in this room, that wherever they're at today, that they'd be willing to take that next step closer to your truth and further from the things that might deceive them. We love you, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.